going to be in Psalm 150 today. So if you have your Bibles, I would uh, encourage you to turn to Psalm 150. It is the last psalm in your Bibles, 150 psalms. Uh, we started with Psalm 1. And um, oh, it starts with Psalm 1. We didn't start. We started with Psalm 133. We talked about Psalm 1. We talked about Psalm 77 last week. So we go to Psalm 150. So just so you know, um, I'm not going in order. Uh, if you haven't caught on, I'm not going in order with regard to the Psalms. Uh, but we are going to spend our summer throughout the Psalms. We're going to call it Summer in the Psalms. And so that's where we're going to be. So I encourage you to go to Psalm 150. And I think that there is one particular word that occurs over and over and over again. And I think you'll get it very, very quickly as we read Psalm 150. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So, as we jump into Psalm 150, there is a word that occurs 13 times in six verses of Psalm 150. And that one word is the word praise. And we find ourselves in a section in the book of Psalms from Psalm 146 to 150, and those are known as the Hallel Psalms, the songs of praise. So we get to the very end of the book of Psalms, the last five books, and it's all about the praise of God. And as a matter of fact, we actually, the Hallel, um, you may be familiar with this, there's the term hallelujah, right? Like, that's where we get the term hallelujah, because what we see is hallel in the Hebrew means praise, and yah is a contraction of the word for God. So it's hallel yah, and we say hallelujah, right? So that's where we get it. Now, you also, you know, if you're in you know, Greek or um, maybe if you're in Latin and you like, you know, Latin, I mean, there are a few people in this congregation that really, really like Latin. Uh, you may actually have really liked for all the saints because it's actually Alleluia. That is the Latin version of what we just did. Hallelujah. Alleluia. Allelu is also talking about praise the Lord. As a matter of fact, there's a song that goes something like this. Some of you may have heard this. This is going to be, I've never done this before, but you've never done it before either. So it's okay, right? So if I go, you know, it goes something like this. This is terrible that I'm doing this, but you know, um, uh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. That's all we're doing, right? That was really good, right? They don't, no, don't, 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 don
But that's where we are, right? So as we get to the very end of the book of Psalms, there should be something within us that we are so excited to be coming and to praise God for who He is. And so that's what we're going to look through. Like one of the the beautiful things at at VBS that we saw um, is that actually when the kids come in, um, the yoggers line up uh, at, at the um, at the entranceway, right? They they line up at the entranceway, and I saw children coming in. And as the children were, were coming in, um, they were just give, being given high fives as they come in. It was glorious as the kids came in. And I saw kids, they were so excited. I saw five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, they're running through with huge grins because they get to worship. And really, I love what the Yoggers were doing, the Youth of Grace, what they were doing, because what they were doing is they were saying, this is the great cloud of witnesses that we have that are witnessing you coming in to worship this morning. And with the same enthusiasm that those, you know, small children came in, I would hope that we would do the same thing as we come into worship, enthusiastic, expectant of all that God will do as He puts us back together, as we renew our covenant vows, as we're reminded of how great Jesus is. I mean, that's the wonder of worship as we are, you know, brought back into wholeness. So, I like, that's what we need. We need, we need like 30 you know, greeters from now on, right? And we just need to line the doors. And as people come in, you know, we just need to give everybody high fives or elbows or fist bumps or whatever it is because we're excited about coming into worship. And that's where we find ourselves at the very end of Psalm 150. So the word praise, the word hallel, it means this. It means to make a show, to boast, um, to rave about, to celebrate to give glory, to commend, you know? I mean, that's what we're talking about, and and we're to praise the Lord. And so, Psalm 150 verse 1 begins with hallelujah. It ends with hallelujah. 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 You see, the the whole psalm, each of the, the last five psalms begins from Psalm 146 through 150. It begins and ends. All of those songs begin hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. And as each psalm increases in praise and love and joy until Psalm 150, which is a praise celebrating, it's almost this ecstasy of praise that goes on to the point where, um, I I love it, the greatest number of words between any two hallelujahs in this particular psalm is only four words, and that only happens one time. In every other instance between one hallelujah and another in the original Hebrew, there are but two words. I mean, you can almost, like the, the psalmist is so excited about all that God has done and his mighty works and his deeds and his provision and his love and his care that he basically says, hallelujah, about this, hallelujah, 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 which we translate praise, 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 praise. I mean, Really, I mean, this, this particular song really just, it's sort of, just has one message, praise, praise, praise. Now, as we think about this um, in Scripture, there tends to be two words, um, two Hebrew and Greek terms translated for worship. This is coming from John Frame, a professor I had. And the first group refers to labor or service, right, in terms of worship and praise. In the context of worship, these terms refer primarily to the service of God carried out by priests in the tabernacle and the temple during the Old Testament period. The second group of terms 
means literally, in terms of worship, bowing or bending the knee, hence paying homage, honoring the worth of someone else, okay? So I don't know if you know this or not, but in the first six rows, we actually have kneeling benches. And, and I think, and so if you, if you sit in the back, like that's coach, okay? <laughs> if you're sitting in the first six rows, you have a kneeling bench so that we can actually bend our, and some of you in the back are like, you're kidding, I had no idea, right? By the way, these seats up front don't cost anything extra, okay? <laughs> You can totally come up front and sit there and actually use the kneelers so when we confess our sins, when I'm doing a prayer of supplication, I give you permission to open those up in the first six rows and to kneel down and so that we pay homage and we bow down because there is something about our body language in the midst of prayer that is helpful for us. So if you're in the back row, come on up. You know, I mean, come on down. It's, it, it's a good time in the first six rows, Right? Amen. That's what I like too. You know, amen. It's a good time right there. Now, the problem is everybody who's sitting in the first six rows is like, don't tell them our secrets. We don't want everybody coming down here. These are our seats, okay? All right. So, maybe we'll have to rotate. We'll have a lottery or something every week, you know, for who has to sit there. So, D.A. Carson says, worship is performing service to honor somebody other than ourselves. It is at both adoration and action. That's what worship is when we're praising God. And and we see this from J.C. Ryle says this. He says, from the beginning of the Bible down to the end, you may trace out a line of public worship in the history of all of God's saints throughout the book. You see it in the very first family that lived on earth. The familiar story of Cain and Abel hinges entirely on acts of public worship. You see it in the history of Noah. The very first thing recorded about Noah and his family when they came forth from the ark was a solemn act of public worship. You see it in the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wherever the patriarchs had a tent, they always had an altar. They not only prayed in private, but worshiped in public. You see it throughout the whole Mosaic economy from Sinai downward until our Lord appeared. The Jew who was not a public worshiper in the tabernacle or the temple would have been cut off from the congregation of Israel. And he goes on to say, but yet in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus himself gives a special promise of his presence wherever two or three are assembled in his name. The apostles in every church they founded made the duty of assembling together a first principle in their list of duties. The universal rule, and from Hebrews 10, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, was was said over and over again. You know, and these are, you know, the ancient times. But turn now to when you think about church history, And what will you find throughout church history? You will find that from the days of the apostles down to this hour, public worship has always been one of God's greatest instruments in doing good to souls. Where is it that, and I love this, sleeping souls are generally awakened? Dark souls are enlightened. Dead souls are quickened. Doubting souls are brought to decision. Mourning souls are cheered. And heavy laden souls are relieved. 
It's in the midst of the public worship of the people of God. And it is a communal thing that we do together. And this is highlighted even more so in the last several years of all the lockdowns that we have had to endure. Because when we come together now, it's like, I'm so grateful to see the body of Christ. I'm so encouraged to see my brothers and sisters. I'm so encouraged to hear the voices of the saints who sing behind me and around me. And it so encourages my heart. James Boyce says that these three things about worship, before we jump into the actual text of this particular one, although that it's again praise, praise, praise. But he says, you know, worship is, is work. He says three things about all of the Hallel Psalms. He says, worship is work. And, and, he, and he quotes Marva Dawn, a, a Lutheran theologian, he says, where she says, beware of sloth and personal preference when it comes to worship. You know, uh, Marva Dawn says, she says that the main problem today in Western churches is sloth. We need to discover the truth that praising God is not something we can do in a passive state, meaning that it's work, right? How many of you come to church and you go, you know, and like, uh, don't, don't raise your hand or stand up, okay? But you kind of go, you're like, nah, I didn't really like that song very much. Yeah. And there's other songs you're like, that song was glorious, well, you know, you can have songs that you might not like and songs you do like, but I, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you, the songs that you might not like are, we need to work to think about the words and how they might be actually affecting your soul. And when we leave worship and we go, you know, I didn't really like worship very much. Well, you know what? It wasn't directed to you. We actually direct our worship to the Lord God of heaven not to ourselves. Matter of fact, if I could, I would take every person here and I would put us all up on stage and I would have an audience of one and it would be the triune God. That's who we're singing to. And, and sometimes I think Satan actually gets in there, our flesh, and, and you know, it says, you know, like, maybe I don't like the way that the beat goes or the music goes or, the, you know, I just don't like the way it's going. And I think that that critical spirit seeps in and we have to do a work. We have to work hard and say, no, I will not allow a critical spirit to enter into my mind, but rather praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That's what I'm here to do. And we have to work diligently on that. Secondly, he says, worship must engage our minds. If worship is praising God for who he is, then we must know who he is. We must know who he is, right? And how do we know who God is? Worship is possible because of God's prior revelation. To worship God, we must know who God is, but we cannot know who God is unless he has revealed himself to us, and God has done just that in the Bible, which is why the Bible takes a, a center stage in the midst of our worship, so that we know who God is, we know how he asks us to worship him, and we learn more about his provision in the midst of the world by, you know, pouring over his word. But let me jump into the text here. First of all, um, who, <laughs> who should we praise from Psalm 150. It's very clear. Praise the Lord. 
Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. You know, certainly who we are called to praise is to praise the Lord. Now, when we think about Deuteronomy, you know, uh, verse chapter 6, verse 5, it is the Shema. It is, it is a, uh, a well-known passage within the Old Testament. The Old Testament Jews would know this very well. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, it says um, this regarding, um, well, let me just read it. Hear, O Israel, I'm in verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates. Essentially, what the Lord God is saying in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is you will worship none other than me. You know, that's, that's also what we see in the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20 in Deuteronomy 5, right? The first commandment, you shall have no other gods but me, which means all of our praise, all of our um, you know, adulation should all be directed heavenward towards the Lord God. But here's what's amazing about Jesus. One of the most amazing things about Jesus is that he demands for himself the same kind of exclusive covenant loyalty that the Lord God demanded from Israel. I'm quoting John Frame. Jesus upholds the fifth commandment against the Pharisees and scribes who dedicated to God what should have been used to support their parents in Matthew 15. But Jesus also teaches that loyalty to him transcends loyalty to parents. Who is Jesus to demand such service and homage? Only loyalty to God transcends loyalty to parents in God's covenant order. And so Jesus in Matthew 10 is making a clear claim to be God. Like Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jesus presents himself as the covenant Lord, the one to whom we owe our utmost allegiance. You see, to praise God indeed is to praise Jesus is to recognize him as unconditionally superior to ourselves in every respect, as one whose true greatness is beyond ourselves in every respect, as one whose true greatness is beyond our poor power of expression. He is the ultimate object of praise. And when Jesus says, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, when he says all of the I am statements throughout the Gospel of John, he's saying, I want you to direct your praise towards me. And he's essentially saying, I am the Lord God. You see, praise is meant to be Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus makes this claim. Let me, let me digress just for a second. Jesus makes this claim uh, to the, the woman uh, uh, at the well in John chapter 4. And he uses this term, and you guys have heard this, you may have even heard it like in the midst of the church, because we use churchy terms sometimes. And, and then when Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman, he actually says to her, you know, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So sometimes I may even use that. Like, Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and truth. What does that mean? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's some rarefied church language right there, right? 
And sometimes we just throw out language in the midst of the church without defining our terms. And, and, and again, language is meaning, and so you have to define your terms in order to actually understand what we're talking about. So what does spirit and truth mean from John chapter 4? Jesus is not, okay, get, get me on this. Jesus is not predicting a more sincere or heartfelt worship among his people. But rather, he was referring to the new things that God was preparing to do for our salvation. The truth is the truth of the gospel, the good news of the salvation in Jesus. The spirit is the spirit of truth who comes to bear powerful witness to that gospel. Worship in spirit and in truth then is a Trinitarian worship. Worship that is aware of the distinctive work of the Father planning, the Son executing, and the Spirit sealing and revealing the truth of God in our lives. So when we say, Lord, help us to worship in spirit and truth, we're saying, Holy Spirit, help us today. Give us the spirit that we might be able to understand the truth And the truth is that Jesus came and died for our sins and was raised and took upon himself the wrath of God so that we might be adopted into the family of God. You see, the the gospel truth is this, is that we are all sinners. We are all sinners. And sinners is not obeying God's law. It's not even wanting to obey God's law. And we're all sinners. And what happens is every sin that you ever commit must be paid for. There's a penalty that that is incurred with every violation of God's law. And if he didn't punish that sin, he wouldn't be a just and righteous God. So every sin that you've ever committed, past, present, and future, must be paid for. And either the punishment is paid for by you or by Jesus. That's it. Those are the two options that we're given in in the truth of God's word. And if you're going to pay for your own sins, the penalty for that is death. But if Jesus pays for it, Jesus dies in your place. And then what happens is you are then credited his righteousness. So when God the Father looks upon you in faith in Jesus, he looks upon one as his son or daughter. And he says, I love you. Now that's the truth of the gospel message. So who, who should we praise? I mean, certainly it, it is the Lord God, but why should we praise him? Well, that's what we're talking about. Notice what it says back in Psalm 150. When you look at, you know, verse two, it says, praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. So praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him for his um, excellent greatness. Now, we think about these terms theologically in, in, in terms of providence, and providence, I don't, by providence, I don't mean like a, a New England town in Rhode Island. I mean by the theological concept. And here's what I mean by providence. The Heidelberg Catechism states that providence is this. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power. Whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. And he so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Think about that, that the Lord God of heaven with his righteous right hand 
upholds all creation so that we are actually in orbit around the sun because of God's providence. And that, you know, it's hot outside today because of God's providence. And yes, it's even humid outside today because of God's providence. Now, question 28 to the Heidelberg says, who cares about God's providence? What benefit is it to me that I understand the providence of God? And Heidelberg says, I'm glad you asked. And he says, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. You heard that lately? For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot such, so much as move. That is God's mighty deeds. And praise him to his excellent greatness. We think about this in, you know, with, with regard to redemption. You know, where should, you know, the, the idea of redeeming love that God so loved us that he gave his only son so that we might live. That we, we call the substitutionary atonement, that, that Jesus on our behalf died so that we might be reconciled to a holy God. You see, our sin separates us from God, but God in his mercy and in his grace sent his son so that we might be reconciled. That's a a beautiful truth and promise that we have. You know, we we think about praising him. You know, thinking about Jesus. I mean, we should come in and go, you know, I'm here so that I can praise Jesus. But let me ask you a question. Um, And we're going to get to um, a couple of uh, tambourines and other things, music instruments here. So, let me ask you a question. What do I do when I don't want to praise him? What do I do when I don't feel like praising the Lord? All of you have felt that, right? I mean, some of you have felt it this morning. Some of you are feeling it right now. Stop it, okay? I mean, some of you are struggling with that. What do I do when I don't want to praise the Lord? Let me give you a couple questions. One of which is, is it because you feel unworthy to praise God? You, you think, my own sins of anger are so large that I cannot enter into the sanctuary today. Oh Lord, you knew what I, what I said in the recesses of my heart today. If you knew what, what I said in the recesses of my heart today, then you would never accept my worship. If you knew the lust of my flesh, then you would not allow me into the throne room of grace. If you knew what I secretly long for and hope for, the wickedness that lives within the recesses of my heart, the lack of love I have for you and for your word. Or maybe it's because of the difficulty I have in expressing my love to those that I'm called to love for. My husband or wife, I, I, I have such a difficult time expressing my love for them or I have a difficult time telling my children that I love them. And the words that have left my mouth towards the little ones that you've entrusted to me in my home, Lord, how am I to walk with you? How am I to come into worship with you when when all of these things are going on in my life? Brothers and sisters, I want you to know this. 
that you are forgiven and that you are loved. In the midst of the sinfulness and the lust of your heart, in Christ you are forgiven. And the Lord God of heaven, through his eternal son, says, come into the sanctuary and worship me because I love you. All that you've messed up all week long is forgiven in Christ. Jesus has paid it all for you. You are not unworthy. Do not allow the lies of Satan to trap you in a bed of despair. But rather, know the love of the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are forgiven and known and loved. The idea of forgiveness should so compel our hearts that we want to run through the high five line of church to come on in. I am forgiven. Now, maybe you're having a hard time with worship, that you have a a difficult, maybe you've got a current situation that's going on, and you go, my situation is difficult, and I cannot worship a God who has allowed me to fall into this current situation. That life is so difficult that I cannot make it into worship today. You're feeling overwhelmed with life and the cares of this world, and they are literally crushing your soul. Well, I'm here to tell you that the one who can actually fix and help you is the one that you should run to. Rather than running away from him like the prophet Jonah, we should do everything we can when things get difficult to make our way into worship where again, we are put back together in wholeness and integrity and in the love and mercy and forgiveness of Christ. You know, if you're tired, you need worship more. <laughs> you need it more. Um, you might say, well, you know, like, how can I worship a God when I see the world is falling apart? Why should I praise God? Why should I come to him? To whom shall you go if not to him? Do you think that the government is going to put everything back together? Have you guys been in a line at the DMV lately? It takes a long time to get through there, right? Like, do you think that bureaucracy that man can create is actually going to fix your problems? You know, let's be like Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? We go to you. There's no one else that we can go to. We've got to go to you. You know, is the world, I mean, is Ukraine a mess right now? Yes, let's go to God on our knees and pray for Ukraine. We run to him, not away from him. Maybe there's some relational discord. Maybe your ego has been damaged and I cannot look at that person in the church that I'm in. Maybe bitterness has made you cold. Has your heart been made so hard that there's nothing that's soft within you? That the promises of God and the people of God no longer hold a place within your heart that longs for community and communion? I mean, come on. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. We're commanded to forgive because we have been forgiven much. Or, you know, maybe, maybe you struggle with worship because you don't think that he is worthy. 
Maybe you're like, yeah, Yahweh, you know, God, Jesus, he's not that great. If you say that, you're saying that you are greater than him. And that your idea of self-idolatry and self-exaltation is usurping the rightful place of God on the throne of your life. And for someone to say that, they essentially make themselves out to be God. All right, here's one. Okay. <laughs> Let me get to the where, where it says tambourine and stuff. Is it because you don't know how to worship? Maybe you come into worship and you, and you just, you're, you're inhibited. And I think this, is, this could be the case with some of us. I want, you, I want you to hear these words. I want you to uh, be like Jesus in this way. When, when the disciples were upset about the little children coming to Jesus in Luke chapter 18, he says this in Luke 8, chapter 18, verse 15. It says, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So let me talk about children for a second. How many of you would feel comfortable coming up front and clapping and saying the verse? How many? And it's because we are inhibited. Somewhere along the line, somebody has told you that you can't dance. And somebody, some poor, wounded soul has told you, you can't sing. But you know what about children? And this is where we learn the faith of a child. When you bring children up, you, take, you will learn about how you are to respond to the gospel if you serve in children's ministry. Because when you ask children, you know, go ask children, like three, four-year-old kids, can you sing? They're like, of course I can sing. Everybody can sing, right? Can you dance? Oh yeah, I know how to dance. You know what? I love going in. When you hear music and you start, you just see little children swaying back and forth, little girls spinning around, and you look around and you go, that is glorious. That is how we should respond to the Lord God of heaven, uninhibited. Some of you don't feel like you have good voices. It doesn't matter. Everybody else around you should hear your voice. I don't add much to the worship service except volume. But you know what, if everybody was singing with great joy in the midst of what we're doing, uninhibited by how we sound to the person to the left or the right or the front or the back, then we would just sound glorious. You can all sing, sing, sing from your soul and from your heart and sing with volume, uninhibited. All right, let me, let me make, let me make uh, just a... All right, so one of my favorite, um, again, let me just go before I say this. You know, children know how to sing and dance and worship. You know, children, they know how to be excited about flowers that are really weeds. <laughs> children also, you know what else they do? They know how to hug with their whole bodies. All of me. Children also know how to sleep and rest well in their father's arms. Aren't you amazed at the neck angles of small children? 
Like, I don't know how children can just, I mean, just, just, uh, I mean, just, uh, you, you long for sleep like that, right? It's because they're uninhibited. It's because they have this childlike faith that we are called to resemble and emulate. Now, there's a, there's a part in, in Psalm 150 that, you know, we get to and we go, so how, how do we do this, right? You know, it says, praise him with trumpet sound. And we heard that this week, you know, Josh Nye, who is sort of the mouthpiece of wilderness, which I think is funny, you know, I mean, he's just playing his trumpet up and down, right? So it's like basically any instrument you get your hands on, the trumpet and the lute and the harp and the tambourine and dance, you know, and you go in verse four, we're like, and dance? I'm like, oh man, I'm not sure. Let me, I'll go back to that. Praise him with strings and pipes. And we have some of those things. Praise him with sounding cymbals. And that's kind of like, almost like castanets or small cymbals. And then praise him with loud clashing cymbals that are coming together. There's this great cacophony that occurs. And praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And we want you to praise the Lord in an uninhibited way. But we look at verse four and it says, praise him with tambourine and dance. You know, David danced when the ark was brought in. There's a comedian, um, there's a comedian named Tim Hawkins, and he's hilarious. So many of you know Tim Hawkins, right? You love Tim Hawkins. If you don't know him, you can actually, I, you can do, go to Tim Hawkins. He's hilarious. He's a Christian guy, right? And here's what he says. He goes, it's amazing to go to worship and find out that people just don't know what to do with their hands. You know? And he goes, you know, some people, and he, and he describes it in this way. Let's see if I can get it right. He goes, some people do it like this. Some people have, um, here's a, the worship symbols. You know, some people, you know, they have the elbow flap. You know, you're singing in worship and you kind of got that going, right? You know, you know, and then some people, it's, it's, it's more like, you know, I want to, you know, carry the TV. You got your hands below here, you know, or maybe it's, you know, you got, you know, maybe it's not a small TV, but it's a big screen TV, you know, as it comes out. You know, that, that's, that's kind of rookie level stuff with your hands, but I want you to be uninhibited. You know, I, this is kind of where I live. I kind of live in the intermediate state where it was like, I, I kind of worship like this, which is like my fish was this big. You know, that's, that's about where I stay, right? My fish was this big. Or sometimes for me, I do what I call the air drummer on the pew in front of me. You know, like I'm trying to keep a beat, right? You know, like, but, or, or, you know, maybe, you know, you've got, you know, like hold my baby, you know, or you got Mufasa, you know, or you've got like, you know, twist the light bulbs, or you've got, you know, it's a, this is a funny one. He calls it, this one, this is his, um, you know, goalpost to heartburn. You know, goalpost to heartburn, right? I'm not trying to make fun as much, and I kind of am, but, but I'm here to say, I want you to be uninhibited. Uninhibited, right? If you can raise your hands, raise your hands. And don't worry about what anybody else says. I mean, I know that we, some of us are Presbyterians and we have a, a genetic predisposition to not be able to get our hands above our waist, but come on. I mean, we can, we can do this, right? You know, raise, raise your hands, or, or you know, maybe there's, you, know, you, you got the, the pointer, the hatchet, and school, you know, uh, or it's the village people, or Rocky, or touchdown, I mean, it's whatever it is, right? But here's the deal, like, sometimes we don't raise our hands, even a little bit, because we're inhibited, and we're not being childlike, because we're worried about what somebody else around us might think of us. I'm here to tell you, the only thing that matters is what Jesus thinks of you. If you are in Christ, then you are a son or daughter of the Most High King. So brothers and sisters, I want you to sing with great joy, with great volume. I want you to enter into worship uninhibited, knowing that you are loved and forgiven. And, and you know what? If you want to raise your hand, if you want to clap, if you want to say amen, then, then go for it. Go for it. It's okay. But the bottom line is, praise the Lord for his mighty deeds Praise him for his excellent greatness. Sing with joy 
Sing because of all that he has done for you in Christ. Um, I'll, I'll close with this. Charles Spurgeon um, was recounting a story. And he was recounting a story of a man who, um, um, at the end of his life, and this man's name was John Janeway. I don't know why his name is there, but it was. And, and so that Charles Spurgeon is with this man named John Janeway. And, he, and this man who's literally about to see Jesus, he says, come, help me with praises. Let everything that, that, that has being help me to praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise is now my life work, and I shall be engaged in this sweet, sweet work now and forever. Bring me the Bible. Turn to David's Psalms and let us sing a psalm in praise. Come, let us lift up our voices in the praises of the Most High. I will sing with you as long as my breath does last. And when I have none, I shall do it better. Because I will be with Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word which causes and propels us to worship you. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would sing of your excellent greatness, of your mighty deeds, and we would do so uninhibited by what the world thinks of us. And Father, if we feel as if our sins are too great, I pray, Lord, that your word would conquer that lie that the enemy wants to bring into our minds. So Father, would you help us Help us to sing. Father, prepare our hearts for communion. Father, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.